We welcome to the show attorney Harvey Silverglade, who has been much in the news recently because he is counsel for John Eastman, alleged co-conspirator with 17 others, including Donald Trump, in an indictment in the state of Georgia. Harvey Silverglade is a distinguished criminal defense and civil liberties attorney based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He is of counsel to the Boston-based firm of Zalkine, Duncan, and Bernstein. I think it's notable the three books that he has authored. One is Three Felonies a Day, which has as a subtitle, How the Feds Target the Innocent. He's also the author of The Shadow University, The Betrayal of Liberty on America's Campuses, and The Conviction Machine, Standing Up to Federal Prosecutions, I'm sorry, Standing Up to Federal Prosecutorial Abuse, which he co-authored with Sidney Powell. Harvey's law firm has on its website this, under the law office of Harvey Silverglade, taking unpopular stances since 1967. Harvey Silverglade, you were the chair of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts for a number of years and were on the board. And I would suspect that your representation of this particular defendant, John Eastman, makes some of your former colleagues and civil libertarians somewhat unhappy. But you say on your banner, taking unpopular stances since 1967. Is this at all difficult for you to take on the representation of John Eastman? No, it's not difficult at all. I have taken on the representation of a lot of people whose politics I disagree with, uh, who did things that I wouldn't have done. You know, a criminal defense attorney necessarily takes on the representation of people that um, have had different life paths from his own, obviously. He is entitled under the Sixth Amendment to the effective assistance of counsel. His primary counsel, Burnham from Washington, D.C., called me up and asked me if I'd represent him. The reason he called me was because he read my book, Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. He said he believes he has an innocent client, but who is the subject of intense media pressure prosecutorial pressure, and uh, he wanted me to uh, to come on board and help, and I, I said yes. Well, Harvey, I want to ask you about the media, because I came to work for you when I was a law student. It was my first co-op job from Northeastern University School of Law. I spent a lot of time working on a murder case that went to trial. I, I should just take a 30-second detour to let you know here that after I returned to Northeastern and then went on my next co-op job, which was at Legal Services in Texas. And I was representing, really, as a law student, I got to do these hearings, Social Security hearings and unemployment hearings. But the only kind of case I knew how to prepare was what you and your law firm taught me, which was how to prepare a murder case. So I was preparing my unemployment and Social Security cases like they were murder cases, which drove a few hearing officers nuts, but was very effective training. So I thank you for that this many years later. I think that it was at that co-op job with your law firm, uh, Zalkine and Silverglade at the time, uh, very much had the lesson taught to me that as a criminal defense attorney, you just don't talk to the media about the case beforehand. You don't make comments, and certainly your client doesn't talk to the media. But in this instance, with your representing John Eastman, you're talking to the media, you're in the New York Times and WHMP, and so is John Eastman. So why is this case different from all other cases? Because there has been a huge amount 
of adverse publicity that is bound to taint any jury. And this is a case in which I have looked at this carefully enough to convince myself that he's innocent and that unless he and his lawyers speak up publicly and respond to all of the stuff thrown at them in the media, we're going to have a trouble trouble getting a, a jury that's actually um, uh, dispassionate. So th this is not the only case I've done that. I've done that in my criminal draft cases during the Vietnam War. There have been instances in which I have had cases in which I have decided that that public the case was going to be tried in the public. I was going to have to jump into the public realm. Tell us who John Eastman is. He is a conservative lawyer. He clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas. He is not only a lawyer, but he is an academic. He, he teaches. I think he, uh, until this happened to him, he was somewhat naive about the Department of Justice and about prosecutors and their motives and their, and their tactics. He also is naive, I think, about the Federal Bureau of Investigation. You know, Bill, that I have had a lifelong battle with the FBI and have long thought that it should be abolished because I don't think that its culture of corruption can be reformed. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. The FBI has its own culture. It's imbued with J. Edgar Hoover, whose ghost runs the Bureau, as as it's called by various directors, the Bureau. It's like right, right out of Kafka. And uh, I would abolish it and uh, fire all of the agents and, and start a complete new organization with a different name, different agents, and different culture. Go back, if you would, Harvey, please, to telling us a bit more about John Eastman. He's a lawyer. He's an academic. Uh, he became an important legal representative for Donald Trump. How did that come about? Well, isn't legal representative? It's lawyer. He was a lawyer advising a client. He was asked in to the inner circle. He's very, very bright. He is conservative. Uh, and um, he gave advice that I consider to be perfectly lawful. And obviously, that's going to be tested at his trial. We're going to be moving for a severance because if Eastman is tried without all the others, even if maybe you know, he's tried with two or three others, the trial should take three weeks. If he's tried with all the others, the trial will take 18 to 24 months, and it won't start for 18 to 24 months. So he could be tied up for the next four years of his life. If he, if he, we get a severance, um, I anticipate a trial could be had in less than three weeks, and he would be acquitted. But if it's thrown in with the with the whole mess, it can go on for four years. Well. This is on my list of things to ask you about later on, but let's go for it now. You say you're going to ask for a severance. That is severance from all the other co-defendants. There are a lot of them. Or are there some that you would be willing to be engaged in the same trial? Awkward phrasing, but I think it's clear enough. Yeah, because he has an adv he, he, his, the advice that he gave, I consider to be lawful. We may have to have a few expert witnesses. But um, it, it's a very matter-of-fact, clearly to the point, brief trial. And um, I would, would not like him tainted with some of the defendants who have different kinds of involvement, who are, um, whose cases would be much longer, especially if they're all tried together. The district attorney, um, Fulton County, Georgia, 
brought a RICO case. Well, you know RICO. It is a it is a sprawling. It was it was enacted by Congress in order to deal with the uh, mafia. It's a sprawling kind of. These trials take forever. They ensnare people who were only peripherally involved, and even people who were barely involved or not involved, and people whose uh, whose roles were not criminal. But when you try a whole large group and you try them as a gang, essentially, it's very hard to differentiate your client and get the jury to focus on the facts relating just to your client. And so that's another reason for a severance here. This is this is a RICO case. Well, it is a RICO case, and I want to spend some time talking to you about RICO and about the charges against John Eastman. But there are also, I think, seven or eight other charges against John Eastman. Solicitation, the violation of the oath of office by a public officer, conspiracy to commit uh, impersonating a public officer, conspiracy to commit forgery, and so on. Are those other charges significant here? Well, we're, we're prepared to try and defend against all of the charges. That's the trial that I think would take about three weeks. Um, I'm not prepared to go into the details of the defense at this point, because we haven't decided whether we're going to disclose that before we, the actual trial. But I can tell you there are defenses to all the charges, and, and the, the, the line between legal and illegal may be very vague and very thin, but as you know about the system, if there's a question, the defendant gets the benefit of the doubt. So we anticipate being able to succeed if we can only get this case focused on Eastman and what he did and what he said and what he advised, rather than what others did. For the benefit of our listeners, let me note that the other charges, conspiracy to commit forgery, conspiracy to commit false statements, conspiracy to commit filing false documents, conspiracy to commit forgery, conspiracy uh, to, uh, and on it goes, including another charge of filing false documents, all of which are part and parcel as well of the racketeering charge, RICO, uh, Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations. Explain for our listeners first, and then I'm going to ask you more about how this pertains to John Eastman. What is the state RICO statute that he is charged with? Well, state and federal RICO are very similar. What RICO does is it tries a whole gang, if you will, or in the mafia cases, a mafia family. And if they can get you associated with it, you get hooked for what any other member of the family did. That's It's a gigantic, uh, aggravated form of conspiracy law. And I've always been suspicious of conspiracy law anyway, because it can wrap up in its web people who had a very minor role or even a legal role. But if they were associated with, quote, the family, close quote, they end up getting indicted. You know, you could even, they could have even indicted some of the mafia wives, um, you know, because they, they fed dinner to the group as they sat around the table plotting their crimes. So RICO is a very dangerous statute, and I'm sorry it was ever enacted, and I'm certainly sorry that um, it's used outside of, uh, of, of, of gang prosecutions. But that's what we're stuck with, because um, the district attorney of Fulton County wanted to, I think, make headlines with a, you know, a, a hundred and something page indictment. You'll notice that federal indictment has everybody else's and an unindicted co-conspirator. It's short. The trial will be short. 
he, he may later indict others, but right now he is taking, um, taking on Trump, and it will be a trial that will be held within my lifetime. I am 81, and it will be uh, weeks, not months, and not years. So I think that the, even though I, I have some criticisms of the feds, the fact is they have done a much better job than the district attorney of Fulton County. Harvey Silvergate is the attorney for John Eastman. I want to know this, Harvey. The nub of the RICO charge against your client, John Eastman, and the other seven or eight charges as well, is that he was engaged with others with trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election, and that he did all sorts of things to try to reverse that, and that he knew, he must have known, that what he was doing was trying to subvert a lawful election. What is the answer to the question of, John Eastman, you knew Trump lost, and then you did a th dozens of things to make sure, or try to make sure, that Trump was declared the victor. How is that possibly lawful? Bill, you have made a gigantic assumption. The gigantic assumption is that Eastman actually believed Trump lost because he didn't believe Trump lost. And there are a lot of people who don't believe Trump lost, you know. That is a view shared by a lot of people on the right side of the political spectrum that you and I don't have much relationship with. But there are a lot of people who think that Biden stole that election. And Eastman is not alone. He's just a member of a segment of the population and the community that you and I uh, and the ACLU uh, is not familiar with. What evidence, though, is it that John Eastman, who you've described as brilliant, he's a professor, he is a smart person, he has his ideological perspective, fine. But he has to have had some objective evidence that he is relying on. He just can't say, well, I choose to believe it, therefore I can try to reverse an election because I believe it. Why? Because I believe it. That's not sufficient, is it? Okay, those are details I will not get into for reasons that you can well understand. But I will tell you that he genuinely believed them. And let me say this, the law is like silly putty. This is Nancy Gertner, when I was partners with Nancy Gertner and Silvergate and Gertner. That's what she used to, she, that was her phrase. The law is silly putty. She happens to be right. The law is silly putty, especially um, laws which are very vague. Now, the state law, because it's common law, it's anchored by the common law tradition, is usually less vague. But when a state tries to mimic the feds with RICO, it loses the advantage of the common law of being understandable by people of ordinary intelligence and suddenly becomes a gigantic spider web that can trap a lot of insects that have not done nothing wrong. So that is the problem here. We are facing a mush of, of an indictment. She could have brought an indictment that took, took up 10 pages she could have indicted a small group and named everybody else and indicted a co-conspirator like the feds did. Trial could happen in months from now, and it would take weeks. Instead, she decided she wanted to get headlines in the New York Times. I think it was disgraceful. Well, let me ask about a number of the 
facts and or opinions that you just mentioned. One is the unindicted co-conspirators, and there are many of them mentioned in the federal indictment. There are also 30 persons here in the Georgia indictment who are not identified by name, and I'm wondering whether they are co-conspirators, in your opinion, the people who are not named in the indictment. And it occurred to me, my goodness, they're not indicted. Maybe all of these people are cooperating with the prosecution. Can you comment on that? Well, we don't know. We don't have a witness list yet. But let me tell you this. As you know, prosecutors are very good at getting witnesses to coin a phrase that we defense lawyers have used for decades, not only to sing, but also to compose. If you take somebody who is facing a potential indictment where they could be in prison for 10, 15, or 20 years, and you say, but if you testify helpfully, mind you, helpfully, I will recommend either that you not be indicted or that you be indicted and that you get a three-month suspended sentence or something like that. This is bribery. If I were to do this or you were to do this, we would be in prison immediately. It would be bribery of a witness. Why is it not bribery of a witness for a prosecutor to say, if you cooperate, we'll give you a, a tremendous deal? I've always thought that plea bargaining, the way it's done in this country, is a disgrace because prosecutors engage in felonious conduct that if we did it, we would be in prison and they do it and they get, they, they get headlines in the New York Times as being heroes. I think it's disgraceful. We are speaking with distinguished defense attorney Harvey Silverglade. We are speaking about his client, John Eastman, and the indictment in Georgia, and we'll have more right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are back with attorney Harvey Silverglade, attorney for John Eastman. In the earlier part of our conversation today, Harvey, you mentioned what John Eastman believed. There is a concept in the law, particularly in RICO indictments, that has been much discussed and written about in the media recently, and that is the concept of willful blindness. That means, and correct me if you disagree with this characterization of it, that a person cannot simply say, I believe X, if the evidence overwhelmingly is that X is not true, and therefore X does not become a defense. X in this case being Donald Trump won, there was enormous fraud in the election, and there the actions taken to try to overturn that election are lawful. I'm wondering, I know you're not going to tell us what the defense is, you've made that clear, but I'm wondering if you could comment on this concept of willful blindness and how it pertains to the indictment and the charges against John Eastman. That is a question that we're prepared to litigate and it will be up to a jury. And Bill, let me remind you of something. We don't have to convince 12 out of 12. We have to convince one out of 12 to get a hung jury. How many times will the government try to retry this case? By the way, I think that the case against Trump is going to have a similar problem. It's a very different kind of case. Some would argue it's a stronger case. But how are you going to find a jury without at least one person who covers up his or her views on voir dire 
gets on that jury. It's going to be very difficult to get convictions in any of these cases, I think. There has been a lot of discussion and media attention given to motions that have been filed by Sidney Powell and at least one other co-defendant seeking a speedy trial and a severance. You were quoted and have been quoted in the New York Times and elsewhere saying you are going to seek a speedy trial and you've already talked to us about the severance. Are you seeking a speedy trial in this case? And if so, when do you think this case, assuming there's a severance, could go to trial in Georgia? We are seeking a speedy trial and a severance, and those are very intertwined because without a, spe- without a severance, there's no speedy trial. It won't start for a couple of years, and it will take a couple of years. But if we can get a trial just ourselves, or maybe with a small group of lawyers fairly similarly situated, nobody is quite as well situated as a legal advisor as, as um, Eastman, but there are other lawyers, and this could be a relatively short trial, and it could deal with the question of good faith legal advice and whether it was good faith and so forth. And so that would be of a great benefit to everybody because it would uh, allow people with a very short trial to get out of this thing. And then the rest would have a, a shorter trial, not a, not a short trial, but a shorter trial. So I'd like to clarify. If the trial for John Eastman is with a couple of others, do you really think it could begin on October 23rd? Maybe November, but we're talking a few months. We're not talking a year. We're not talking more than a year. We're talking a few months. Yes. I would like to go back to one of the issues we were just talking about, and that is the question of unindicted co-conspirators. Because at the very beginning of the Georgia indictment, there is mention of 30 persons known to the grand jury who participated. And I'm wondering if you have some sense of who those 30 people are and whether you expect to see them on the government's witness list. I always assume that unindicted co-conspirators end up on the government's witness list. Being unindicted was the reward for their helping the the prosecution. And remember, in my experience, more of that testimony is perjurious than not. Not all, it's not all perjurious, but more than, more than, well more than half in my experience. To use the phrase again, they sing, but they also compose. And it's the composing part that really raises my temperature. I was struck in the indictment in Georgia about the listing of the co-defendants, starting with Donald Trump. He's first. The second defendant named is Rudy Giuliani. And the third person named is your client, John Eastman. I'm wondering if that is an indication of the order in which the government, in your judgment, is seeking to convict and sentence these individuals. Because after that, there are a couple of people I've heard of, and then there are a number of people I've never heard of before at all. I think that Sidney Powell is a reasonably important one as well. But I think they, that, that is considered the inner circle, to use that phrase. And I think it is the inner circle, and that's why they're going after them. By the way, I'm surprised you haven't asked me about how it came to be that I was, I'm co-author of a book with Sidney Powell. 
Oh, it's coming, Harvey. <laughs> okay, so I, yes, I should have mentioned Sidney Powell in, in, in the order of people who the government is seeking. But was that listing more or less intentional in your view? I think you- everything in this indictment was intentional. I don't think it was wise. I don't think it was accurate. I don't think it was strategically smart, but I believe it was intentional. Okay, stay there for a moment. 18 people in an indictment. You can just imagine a trial with, I don't know, maybe two, three lawyers apiece and 18 people in the courtroom and everyone gets to cross-examine and the voir dires of the witnesses. I mean, you talk about a, a trial that will go on for a long, long time. You say it's, it wasn't strategically wise. Then why indict 18 people unless you think that by indicting them, they are going to come over and be of assistance to the prosecution. Yeah, there's no doubt that there's going to be a lot of pressure here to have witnesses, again, to repeat the phrase, sing and compose. I believe that was the uh, the purpose of it. it. You know how much money it would take to to have a, to be on trial? Two years of preparation and two years of trial? Uh, who can afford that? Um, I think it was meant to uh, get everybody to fold. I don't know who's going to fold and who isn't. Just from what I read in the newspapers, I would say Donald Trump is not going to fold. I would say that he's going to use this in order to get reelected president of the United States. And I can tell you that Eastman is not going to fold. I don't know about the others, but um, Eastman is not going to fold. Fold. By that, you mean... uh, Sing and compose. He's also very high up in this hierarchy of targets from the government. So it is really unlikely that the government's terribly interested in having him become a witness and giving him a deal unless he could deliver to them Donald Trump. Yeah, you see, they they understand that Trump is going to say he relied on the advice of counsel, and that included Eastman and Giuliani and Powell. Uh, And so if they can get the lawyer, even one lawyer to turn, their case against Trump gets much stronger. But again, it's one of those singing and composing. I don't think Eastman is made of such weak backbone and such bad character. Besides, he's extraordinarily religious. He very, I mean, he's, he is a very religious Christian and he will not take an oath to his God and then lie. Trust me on that. Well, I don't know if you're gonna answer the next question, but what you just said leads to it. Do you expect the defendants in this case to testify? Yes, some of them, not all of them. Some of them, yes. Can you tell us about Eastman? I am. I expect Eastman to testify, yes. Wow, that's that's unusual for a defense attorney to say that early on in a litigation. That is correct. Now, of course, we could change our mind. A lot depends on the government's case. If you think the government hasn't made a prima facie case, you don't put a defendant on. But if you think the government has made a prima facie case, testimony is is perjurious, great pressure to put a defendant on the stand. So we are prepared to do that if uh, the government's case goes as I suspect it will, hopefully in the severed trial. We are speaking speaking with attorney Harvey Silverglade, attorney for John Eastman. We're going to ask Harvey to spend a few more minutes with us, and we will be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with attorney Harvey Silverglade, who is co-counsel for John Eastman. Harvey, your co-counsel's name, and again, refresh our memories, how you know him, how you and he have engaged in this uh, defense together. Charles Burnham read my book, Two, Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. It was first published in 2009, and I updated it in 2011. It had blurbs, by the way, maybe coincidentally, by Alan Dershowitz and about 10 others. And he, he read that book, and he thought that he had somebody who was uh, being targeted, who was innocent, and he thought that um, I would be able to contribute some interesting ideas to the defense, and he called me up and asked me if I'd do it. And I said, sure, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I've represented people who have done horrible things, who have been alleged to have done horrible things, and in some cases have actually done horrible things. This was a political case. Um, nobody was killed, at least not by anything Eastman did. And if it was a murder case, I would have taken it also, but it's not a murder case. It was, um, uh, I looked at it and I thought that actually there was a very viable defense. I would have taken the case that there's no viable defense, but in this case, it happened to be a three felonies a day kind of case. I was thrilled to take on a three felonies a day kind of case. Three felonies a day, we should point out for our listeners, is the book, the title of the book that Harvey wrote in which he posits that everyone commits three felonies a day, and so the feds don't prosecute crimes. They pick people they want to prosecute for crimes. Let me ask you this, Harvey, uh, as long as we're back to this issue of uh, representation, because, of course, everyone is entitled to representation, although not everyone is entitled to representation by you. That said, has this adversely affected a lot of your relationships? I mean, this is a very high-profile case, and whatever the defense proves or doesn't prove, it is assumed that John Eastman is deeply involved with Donald Trump, and that is anathema to a lot of people and a lot of lawyers. How's it affected you, your practice, your life? Okay, it has not resulted in my loss of a single friend. My grandchildren still talk to me, my son. (laughs) (laughs) My daughter-in-law still talk to me. It has resulted in the my change of my relationship with people who were never close to me and who don't really understand the role of a defense lawyer. I'll give you an example. As you know, I am a, I spend some of my time as a writer, not just as a lawyer. I've written several books. I started out as a journalist. I don't know if you know this. I was a journalist before I was a lawyer. I covered the March on Washington for um, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech as a journalist for the Ridgewood, New Jersey News. This is before I ever went to law school. I wrote for the Boston Phoenix. I had a civil liberties column called Briefcases uh, that went on for years until the Phoenix folded. A great tragedy, by the way, the folding of the Boston Phoenix. And I now write op-eds for the Globe and the Wall Street Journal. Um, I think I've gotten a couple in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, on and on and on. So I appreciate the also the public uh, perception of, of cases. Now, what's happened to me is I have a, a list called the opt-in list. I believe you're on it, Bill. It's 440-something people 
who, um, to whom I send out, every time I publish a column or an article, I send it out to them. Now, a lot of them have read it before I send it out, but most of them will not have gotten to it and they read it because I, I email it to them. Well, a few people have told me that I should take them off the list. Now that's interesting because they disagree with the politics of my client. They don't want to read what I write. That is a thermometer of the division in our society. There are actually people who will not read what I write because they disagree with the politics, not of me even, but of a client of mine to whom I'm providing Sixth Amendment you know, representation of, of counsel in a criminal case. That really told me a lot about what's going on in this country and it's very dispiriting. The last time I can remember this kind of bitter division was during the war in Vietnam. I can't remember anything like it between Vietnam and, and, and Trump. Harvey, we want to get back to the trial of John Eastman. You've talked to us about the potential for a speedy trial motion, which you're going to file, and for a severance motion, which you and your co-counsel are going to file. Can you tell us when you're going to file those motions? As soon as motions are due. Okay. And the other motion that has received a lot of attention for other co-defendants is the removal motion. Can you explain that to our listeners and whether that has any in impact at all on your client, John Eastman? Well, there are grounds for certain of the defendants to remove to a case to federal court. The main reason that that is seen as advantageous is because of the jury pool, that you get a broader cross-section of the society when you have a jury pool that comes from the federal district rather than from the county. So I think, I think that's probably true. I think it's probably a, a good idea to try it in federal court. I'm not sure any federal court will actually take it on. It's a, it's a gigantic headache to inherit, but, but there is, it's a rational move to try to get, to get this uh, a, a more represent, representative, broader-based jury pool. But removal doesn't apply to Eastman because the removal, the grounds for removal is the person claiming it, the defendant claiming it says, I was working in my capacity as a federal officer, not as a political operative. So it doesn't, right. doesn't, it doesn't apply affect, to Eastman. Yeah, you didn't ask me that. I, I never claim it, Eastman, it affects Eastman. We're, we're not going to. Okay. Before we go, I want to give one last try to see if you'll comment on some evidence. Um, uh, one of the factual allegations in the indictment has to do with how your client, uh, John Eastman, was trying to affect Mike Pence on the day that the electoral votes were trying to be counted. And the claim is that was improper. He had to know it was improper. And what the means going, going about that were illegal. Can you comment on that at all? Okay, I'm not going to comment on the merits of whether it was uh, illegal or not or improper or not, but let me say this. Is there any evidence that he threatened the vice president? Is there any evidence that he tried to bribe the vice president? He threw out a legal theory. It was rejected by Pence, and that was the end of it. Tell me what's criminal about that, Bill. We're going to leave that for another conversation. Harvey Silverglade? Hey, can I? Can I? Yeah. You, you didn't ask me about how I ended up co-authoring a book with Sidney Powell. Oh, I forgot. I'm sorry. This you're right on my yellow pad. How did you end up co-authoring a book with Sidney Powell? My book, Three Felonies a Day, was a was a huge seller. It it went. It, it's still selling very well. 
my publisher said that he would like he wanted me to uh, update it with a with a new volume uh, there had already been a second edition of the book so it had to be a separate book he said the problem is as bad now as it was when you wrote the three felonies i'd like you to write another one i finished half the manuscript at that point my late wife elsa dorfman the photographer whom you knew her kidney she, she had kidney disease she got that from when when she was a young photographer she had all the caustic developing chemicals in her studio apartment in, in cambridge and they affected eventually affected her kidneys so she was dying of kidney failure i called up my publisher and said roger i cannot finish this book i have taken leave of my law practice which i did and the, the last six months of Elsa's life, I was her primary care person. I was with her 24-7. I did no work, no writing, no nothing. So uh, Roger said, well, it's really too bad because I love the first half that you finished. Let me try to find you a co-author. He looks around and finds that a lawyer named Sidney Powell wrote a fabulous book about her years as an assistant U.S. attorney in Texas. It's called Licensed to Lie. And it was about how the feds get FBI agents and witnesses to, to perjure themselves in order to get convictions. This is right up my alley. It's a great book. You can order it on Amazon. And I said, yep, sounds like she's the one. She did it when I couldn't. It was published. And then a few months, she did the book tour because I was still with Elsa. And then a few months later, she shows up in the White House. People started to call me, how could you co-author a book? First of all, I would say to people, look, the question is, did you like the book? Was there anything inaccurate in the book? No, that's the end of the discussion. She did me a huge favor. She did a good job finishing up the book that I started. And that's the end of the discussion. We're going to leave it there. It's the end of our discussion for day, today. Harvey Silverglade, I want to thank you. You've been very generous with your time, your insights, and thank you so much. Right, Bill. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are joined by John Pucci, longtime criminal defense attorney, particularly federal criminal defense attorney, and prior to that, U.S. attorney and the U.S. attorney for the Springfield, Massachusetts office of the Department of Justice. John, I know you just heard of the conversation, the interview with Harvey Silverglade. Please share with us your impressions and your response. Well, I'm not really interested in responding to Harvey. I will fill in some gaps because uh, he covered a lot of ground. Let me say that as to John Eastman, he left out the John Eastman, the chapter of John Eastman's life in, 19, in two, the year 2020 when uh, Kamala Harris was the candidate to be vice president of the United States, he was the primary and sole, sole I might add, advocate for the theory, a birther theory, that she was not only disqualified from being vice president of the United States, but was not even a US citizen. So in doing that, you know, he grafts himself into the whole birther attack that Donald Trump made on Barack Obama and brands himself is an off-the-wall ideologue for whom there's no limit to what he'll say to get what he wants. I mean, nobody, every expert that has looked at this Kamala Harris claim of his has dismissed it as frivolous or insane. And here's Harvey Silverglade prevent, you know, trying to convince you that because uh, Eastman has a high IQ, he somehow is, 
is, is that cures and purifies all his opinions when he's on record as offering terrible opinions, corrosive to the public interest in, in having good people run for office uh, as high as the president, uh, uh, the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. So that's who Eastman is underneath the sheets. And that's who he has been for a long time. And the one thing that Harvey leaves out is that by the time of the insurrection on January 6th, when Eastman appeared shoulder to shoulder with Trump, urging the crowd to violence, urging them to violence, at that moment in time, every single court had examined all of these election claims and dismissed them as having no basis in fact. Lots of Trump appointed judges, across the courts of district courts, across the courts of appeals, had all rejected those theories that he was promulgating. And in fact, if you, if you drill through the uh, indictment, you can even find what I think is Eastman's guilty plea. He pleads guilty effectively uh, in some of the conversations that are quoted from his own emails. And there's an email that stands out that he sent to Pence in which he said, I implore you to consider, listen to this now, one more relatively minor violation of the Electoral Count Act and adjourn the, the, the process of uh, uh, accepting the electoral votes for 10 days. So he, in that statement, in an email, admits that he's urging a violation of a federal law. I mean, I don't know what he's going to say about it, but it's in writing. He wrote it. He owns it. It's in the indictment. And I think, you know, I think he's finished. I think he's going to get convicted. He knew it was illegal. He said it was illegal. He's a lawyer. You don't get to get away with that uh, in an attempt to overthrow a legitimate election process that has been upheld by every single court in America. Trump judges, Obama judges, Bush judges, every single one of those judges and every single one of those courts of appeals filled with the best and brightest lawyers in America have rejected the very thing that um, Eastman was urging and that Harvey is standing up on. So I wish Harvey the best. I hope he sells a lot of books based on your interview, <laughs> but I cannot say that, you know, what he's telling the public here is credible. Do you come down the same place as Harvey did and does apparently that Eastman's going to have to testify because he's going to have to explain the statements, some of which you just referred to? Yes, I do. And I do think, I mean, the three, I'm looking at Buzz and you and me and maybe other people listening, uh, went to law school and know that law school professors can get on a podium and spin out all sorts of ideas. And there's no limit to the intelligence that can be presented by law school professors, and that's what he—that's what he is. He is a law school professor. He gets an A for IQ for thinking up and imagining theories, and he gets an F for judgment in 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 applying theories and vetting them as to whether they're real or not. And he gets an F. Uh, really, uh, you know, he gets convicted for purveying what he knew were false theories concerning the election. But isn't that, isn't that the nub of it? Did he actually know they were false, or did he, as an advocate, have the not only the ability but the right to suggest, I have this theory, I need to test it, I can do it on behalf of my client, I'm doing what I am ethically actually bound to do for my client? 
it's a what he urged was a violation of the electoral count act that is what he urged pence to do which was at the center of all of the machinations about getting alternate slates of electors and pulling them in and having alternate uh, forensic analysis all of that turned on what he said and advocated for which were violations of the electoral count act and that's a federal law and he 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 asked for those violations specifically and acknowledged they were they were illegal we are going to leave it there we've been speaking with john pucci his perspective on the interview we just had with john eastman's attorney harvey silvergate john we'll have you back on to discuss this more in the next few days i hope thank you so much for your time perspective and insight Say hi to Harvey. Bye. <laughs> this is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I, Bill Newman. And Bill, we just had this wonderful, glorious three-day Labor Day weekend. A little bit hot. It was a little bit hot when I was working outdoors. Um, but it was Labor Day. And with us is Senator Paul Mark, who I know... Paul, Labor Day means something special to you. Labor means something special to you. I'd love to hear what your thoughts about about that. Yeah, thanks for saying that. Uh, as a IBW member for 23 years now, I can't believe it, and as a uh, member of the Mass Teachers Association for five years now as well, um, labor is a big part of like who I am and how I was able to have the opportunity to be successful. And I guess the story I, I would tell when I think about Labor Day, this is what Labor Day is all about to me. When I was 20 years old and I had been working at the old phone company, it was still called Bell Atlantic at the time, um, probably four months into being there, we went on strike. And they were negotiating a contract, and the employees decided that what Verizon, or excuse me, what Bell Atlantic at the time that was making billions, literally billions of dollars of profit every month, what, what, what they were offering wasn't, wasn't good enough. And so we went on strike. And for a 20-year-old, going on strike was awesome <laughs> because it meant I didn't have to go to work. And we got to walk around in front of the place where we worked, and we got to yell at the boss, which was cool. And people, like, towards the end of the day would, like, sneak you a beer or something like that. And so at first I was like, yeah, strike is awesome. Unions are awesome. But then as the strike went on and I started listening to people talk, and they talked about previous strikes as well, it actually had a really big impact on me because what – while I was 20 years old and I had the luxury of like going a couple of weeks without pay, uh, people were there going without their weekly pay because they wanted to fight for benefits that would benefit everyone that worked there. So people were telling their kids, hey, sorry, we can't do that thing or we can't spend that little extra money this week because we don't have any – we don't have a check coming in for a couple of weeks because it was that important to them who had been working there for a long time that people like me had access to free health care and had access to a tuition plan that I would ultimately take advantage of and that would really change my life. And so that's what, what I learned about Labor Day is that Labor Day is about people taking a stand, working together collectively for mutual benefit, not just for themselves, but for everyone, for future generations, and for people that aren't in the union as well that also benefit because when we got a raise at Verizon, that kind of set a standard that other companies and other employees would look to and negotiate based on that. You know what I mean? We, we, would, we would be like the avant-garde of, of, um, of what people might get paid. And like even like UPS that just went through, 
their contract negotiations, I think they're in the same they're in the same shape. And you know, there's not there's not enough jobs like that. I, I don't think around uh, anymore that you could you could um, support a family and you could kind of guarantee that it would be there for a while. And um, that's yeah, that's what Labor Day means to me is is, is fighting for others. And uh, Senator Paul Mark, you have something that a lot of us don't have. You have the authority and the influence that comes with a member of being with being a member of that chamber, the Senate. What do you think local government, that is state government, can do here in Massachusetts to enhance the ability of people to have productive, well-paying jobs? What What's within your purview? Yeah. We, we also set, as Massachusetts, we set a standard. We're the avant-garde, and other states often follow. Unfortunately, some states go in the opposite direction, <laughs> but for the most part, we, we set a standard that other, other states look to, and that's, that's kind of been our responsibility really since the beginning of uh, what became this country. And so when we raise the minimum wage to, say, $15, that becomes a standard that other, other states look to and neighboring states look to. When we, when we talk about having paid sick time, when we talk about having earned paid sick time, when we talk about family leave benefits that aren't just, yeah, you can have 12 weeks off, but you're going to have to figure it out because we're not going to pay you. When we talk about those things, those those are protections that I think are important for a lot of people. And I think union membership is under 13% now, what, what they call union union density, um, that the number of workers in the total workforce that join, that are, that are part of a union is 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 a little higher than it was 15 years ago, but is, is generally towards the lower ends. But if you think about what unions can accomplish and what as a politician, as a legislator, we can accomplish by standing with labor, uh, I, I think it's a lot. I think it has a real impact on, on families and, and individuals and, and people that live in this, in this state. I, I think the union movement was really involved in uh, what became question four there with, with uh, making sure driver's licenses were available to people, you know, trying to get to a job. And, and labor often takes stands, at least in modern times, <laughs> that, uh, that are about economic justice, that are about social justice. And that's how we raise, that's how we raise standards for everybody. Well, uh, you, uh, Bill. Paul Mark, Senator Mark, I would really appreciate your perspective on the future of the labor movement, particularly in your district, the Berkshire, Hamden, Franklin, Hampshire district. It's a primarily, though not entirely, uh, rural district. It's not easy to organize in smaller workplaces. Do you see a future for organized labor in your district? Yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely a future. I think what labor is trying to do and really needs to do is be adaptable. And so with my union in particular, there was a time, my, my, my locals, I should, I should say, the, the, the telephone-based locals, there was a time where they were used to just having a steady stream of, of, of new members. As, as, as 9X or, or New England Telephone or AT&T or whatever it was called at whichever year it happened to be, as they hired people, those were new members and then joined the union and, and they had that steady flow of membership. And I think there was a moment where that was taken for granted, that this, is, this, this landline business is a monopoly. It's always going to be that way. And I think unions that have been really successful in modern times are, are looking for ways to organize different sectors of workers. When you work in an office, there's still a benefit potentially to being in a union. When we look at IBW, my, my, uh, my main union uh, right now, 
they are all about organizing in clean energy, in green energy, in, in renewable sectors. Uh, the offshore wind, should it come to pass, which we hope it's going to come to pass, that has the potential for so many green jobs. And yeah, it's going to have opportunity for membership right in my district, right in the Valley, right in Western Massachusetts. Uh, I just think it's, it's, it's a changing landscape. I know people in different segments that maybe hadn't thought about unionizing in the past are starting to think about that. And then as an offshoot of the labor movement, cooperatives, worker ownership, employee ownership, that that's, that's the thing I, I work for. And I, and I, I champion all the time, uh, whether it's in, uh, policy bills or, or budgets at the state house, and and that's another way for workers to get directly invested in what their job is, making their job better. And if you have an employee-owned business, the employees are more likely to stay. They're more likely to be, um, you know, really vested stakeholders. And the money that is made is more likely to stay in the community. So yeah, these things have have a benefit directly to our region because local businesses or shared wealth at bigger companies that happen to be in this region means shared prosperity and better economic opportunity locally. So, uh, Paul, let me ask you the question that uh, I, mean, I am 100% on board with everything that you said, so I'm sort of speaking, I'm biting my tongue. My tongue is bleeding as I ask the next question, but the governor has <laughs> talked about the need for the Commonwealth to be attractive to new business endeavors. How, how do we, at the same time we are supporting union rights and workers' rights and uh, a living wage, how do we still maintain uh, our profile as an attractive place for people to come and do business? Yeah, first you've got to consider like what makes a community attractive to a business. And so if, if one looks at it from the perspective of how do we make regulations as low as possible? How do we make pollution standards as low as possible? How do we make it as easy as possible for business to do anything they want? How do we make taxes as low as possible? That's, that's one way a state or a country can proceed, and it is a way a state or a country has proceeded at, at, at many times. In Massachusetts, A, I don't think that's what we as members of this commonwealth want. And B, I don't think that is what has made us attractive. And so you can argue that Massachusetts certainly isn't a low-tax, low-cost state. Uh, you could say, I think, in far tax, we're actually somewhere in the middle, and we do try to be competitive in, in that, that we don't want to arbitrarily have higher tax rates than anywhere else, but we want to be at a tax rate that makes sense for us because what is actually attractive about Massachusetts is we have a highly educated, highly skilled workforce. We have people coming out of school all the time that we know when they went to a school here, whether it's vocational tech or uh, uh, regular K through 12, we know they're coming out with an ability to learn, an ability to acquire knowledge, and an ability to then easily be trained and, and be successful workers and successful members of the community. And then when you think about higher education, we have more bachelor's degree holders than any other state in the country. So what makes us attractive is we have great schools, we have great higher education installations, and then we have amazing places that pop up near those that want to take advantage of that knowledge, that knowledge uh, base, that knowledge foundation. What we have to be careful of is things are so easy to make remote now that we could have kids coming. I'm just going to pick a school, UMass, people, people come to MIT and then can easily take the skills that they have acquired and work remotely 
pretty much anywhere in the world. And what benefit Massachusetts gets that, that's a thing we have to consider, and that's a thing we have to debate as, as we move forward. Senator Mark, the other piece of this economic puzzle is that Massachusetts, by and large, is a great state to live in. Many, many communities, people say, boy, would I love to live there. But Massachusetts cannot maintain that as a calling card for businesses to locate here unless we have adequate housing for people to live in. And I'm wondering what your view is about how is Massachusetts going to create that housing? Yeah, so I would say what you said is right on in that we are a high-cost state. And so that is a that is a negative as, as whether a business or, or whether a family or an individual is thinking about where they want to live. If you're looking at paying $3,000 a month for an apartment somewhere, yeah, that, that's, that's going to be a burden. And so if you can find somewhere else that may be second best <laughs> because half as much, that might become second best might become attractive. And so with housing specifically, the House and Senate right now are starting to work on uh, legislation that is intended to uh, promote housing production, to promote uh, housing opportunities, to promote keeping people right now that are in housing in the housing they have without them losing it. Because uh, we talk about whether it's my story or, or, or a lot of people's story, the second you are out of the housing you have, that moment it becomes that much more difficult to keep a job, to keep your education going, to keep so many other things. It, it creates the potential for a snowball that can get that can spiral out of control really, really quickly. And so to that end, um, this week, actually, by chance, um, to my district, to Senator Velas's district, to Senator Cumberford's district, to Senator Gomez's district, the chair of housing, Lydia Edwards, is coming out, and she is conducting listening sessions to hear. So she, I'm, she's, she's the senator out of East Boston, so I'm sure she is well-versed in what housing looks like in East Boston and Revere and that area. But she's coming to hear, so what can we do differently out here in western Massachusetts that will still work and still contribute to the total success of Massachusetts? So I'm going to bring her person. I'm going to bring her to a development that the Hilltown CDC is working on in the town of Chester so that she can get a glimpse of this is a small town, and this is how you can make housing work in a small town. And then hopefully – these conversations will lead to legislation that will be beneficial for, for, for everybody. Hopefully that's the case. We are speaking with Senator Paul Mark of the Berkshire Hamden Franklin Hampshire District. We're going to be back with Senator Mark right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we'll continue our conversation with Senator Paul Mark. Um, Senator Mark, there was there's a meeting that's planned in Adams to discuss the Women's History Trail. Can you tell us about the Women's History Trail and what this meeting is all about? Yeah, so, so we're going to have listening sessions. And as a little uh, background, uh, the Women's History Trail Commission has existed for a few years. It was actually um, not my predecessor, but my, my friend and my colleague out of North Adams, Gail Ann Caridi, who was a major champion of this and, and representing the town of Adams, birthplace of Susan B. Anthony, uh, I think was a major driver uh, in, in addition to her being a, a, the first woman elected to her district as, as a representative. And um, 
eventually her, unfortunately not in her lifetime, but uh, eventually her legislation did pass and did come about. Uh, and it, it was uh, meant to coincide with the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Then COVID happened and things got sidetracked a bit. The 19th so Amendment now, was the, the, giving the woman the right to vote. Allowing women to vote, absolutely. Um, and so where we are right now is myself and Representative Mindy Dom out of Amherst are the chairs of the Tourism, Arts, and Cultural Development Commission, which also makes us the chairs of this Women's uh, History Trail Commission. And so we're starting to have this sessions and the western massachusetts listening session is going to be two weeks from today september what's today's date 19th, september 19th in uh, the town of adams and it's going to be from 5 to 7 p.m at the adams theater and so we'll start publicizing that actually today uh, with the two weeks notice and so if people are interested in coming out and either learning more or, or hearing more or, or participating or asking questions uh, that's going to be a great opportunity and if people have questions if they're hearing this and they want to know more please do feel to feel free to email me directly call.mark at masenet.gov and we will try to get you the information as we can well, and um, maybe we'll maybe we'll send you another email just so you can talk about it as, as we get closer and please do and we will but september 19th i think is two weeks from today september yeah, 19th and and but we need a little bit of the backstory what is the women's history trail uh, intended to be, what is it expected to be, and what are you going to be listening to in this uh, this hearing? So the trail itself is a series of sites around the state that are instrumental in the women's rights movement. So the Susan B. Anthony Museum over in uh, Adams, for example, is, is a place beyond it. Uh, I believe that the Warner True Statue in Northampton is uh, a member of, of, of this, this trail. And so I guess at a listening session, what is most important is we want to hear what people hope to accomplish with the trail, um, what they think would be the most beneficial and useful, and always, is there a site that we should make sure is on this? Because the way it works right now, it's, it's, it's kind of coming together, but I think it's these are the sites. There's a pamphlet. We hand out a pamphlet and there's a map in, in, in front of the Senate chamber. And so you can pick up the pamphlet and you can learn, oh, wow, I didn't know there was this in, in, in the, I don't know that there's a place in Asheville, but there's, there's, there's this, this, this place in Asheville I can visit. So ideally, like you were talking to me uh, before we started talking about people visiting sites and, and, and visiting educational opportunities and, and, and spending money, um, hopefully it gives people a reason to travel to different parts of our state but also brings awareness to something that I think most people would agree is, is, is really important and is a part of history that you know really needs to be highlighted and, and spotlighted. And yeah, we missed that 100th anniversary in terms of people being able to, to get out and congregate because it was in 2020, which was not a great year for that. But I think I think this is something that should always be celebrated and always thought about. And so, yeah, it's it, it, in terms of listening, listening session, just come out and let us know what are you thinking, what do you think would be the best thing. Senator Mark, is part of this Women's History Trail endeavor intended to make the Women's History Trail a tourist attraction and a tourist uh, destination? In other yeah. words, is, it, is, is part of this to create another economic driver here in, in your district? So this is where, with, with Gail Ann, when she first filed this, I think, yes. I think she wanted people in Massachusetts, and I think she was working at the museum, to realize that someone as important as Susan B. Anthony was born in the town of Adams. Did you know that? And 
there's this beautiful statue uh, that was unveiled just a couple of years ago uh, by local artists. And, yeah, I think part of telling the story of Massachusetts definitely, as far as I'm concerned, selfishly, yeah, telling the, telling the, the, the story of, of our region and of our, our, of our district, of course. But, yeah, I think, I think that can be a driver. People like to go right now, right? They like to go to memorials. They like to go to museums. They like to go to things related to the military. They like to go to things related to sports. But I think people also like to go to learn about history. And so if you acknowledge that there was three stops you could make within an hour drive of here that are really significant in a historical uh, social context, I, I think that, yeah, that, that could definitely potentially be uh, another driver of, of why people maybe make a visit somewhere. Right. The, uh, this national, there is a national collaborative for women's history sites. And mm-hmm. this, the, the national, that collaborative voted to embark on this women's history trail endeavor throughout the country. And so they, the William Pomeroy Foundation, I believe, is uh, in part funding uh, a lot of these initiatives, but we're talking about having these roadside markers and having actual uh, uh, visits uh, planned to these historical sites. And in your district, Senator Paul Mark, and in northern New York, there are so many sites because the suffrage movement was born in Massachusetts and New York, uh, right. much of it. So, I mean, I think it's really important for all of us to know this history, don't you? Yeah, no, ab- absolutely, and and this is this is a way to do it that I think can mean a lot, have meaningful impact for for a lot of people and for for our communities. And finally, before we uh, break, I'd like to ask you, Senator. There was a constitutional amendment that was proposed, and frankly, I don't know what where it's at. I know that in my town, we always called them selectmen until we took a vote to call them the select board because we've had women since the '80s serve on our, on our select board. And uh, we thought that that was a done deal until we found out that it needed to be voted on by the legislature, which it has been. Now there's a constitutional amendment wherever the term, quote, select men, end quote, appears, including in the Constitution of Massachusetts, that it be changed to select board. And I know that bubbled up from the Senate, I believe. And do you know the status of that right now? So we have, um, to pass a constitutional amendment, you have to have it pass in the constitutional convention in the legislature. We have one of those quarterly, but up to this point, we have not had one where we have taken a vote on anything of substance. So at, at this moment, no, we haven't done it. And then I, I, I don't want to put the ball on her. Um, I believe but Representative Mindy Dom, my, my co-chair of the Tourism Committee, filed one of these. And her intent, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, would be to replace all references even of gender with something that was neutral, uh, instead of like, you know, uh, he shall not, it, it, it would become something they shall not, that was uh, neutral and, and welcoming. So taking that even a further step. And, and with select board, I've personally passed laws, that, and, and as you're saying, Tom, always aware of this, we, we have passed the law to change your charter um, and, and, and make the language board as opposed to select men. Um, so my answer is, I don't know when it's coming before the Constitutional Convention, mm. sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, it's well overdue, I think. Uh, uh, it's, it, I agree. It, it always bothers me when we see women, you know, chairing these boards and their boards of select men, and I'm scratching my head, like, saying, doesn't that bother these women? But it bothers well, me. Well, 
Men have changed to like city council as well. Right. Same, same, same reason. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate our monthly discussions with you, Senator Palmark. Thank you, uh, by the way, uh, as someone who also was concerned about labor and uh, working America. Thank you for your uh, uh, very important work in that regard. And we'll talk to you next month. All right. Thanks so much. Good to talk to everybody. Thank you, Senator. We'll be right back. While you're so far away She's loving your man In your own damn bed This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. There is an amazing phenomenon that's going on, uh, a 6,000-mile trip by uh, Little Amal, who is a 12-foot puppet of a, a representation of a 10-year-old Syrian refugee girl traveling across 13 countries, and they're going to be in Ashfield on September 10th, and they're going to be celebrated, and you can come and celebrate with us um, this this extraordinary um, event, and it's going to be sponsored by the folks at Double Edge Theater, and with us to talk about it is co-artistic director Travis Coe. If you've, if you've ever been to, within the last, I don't know, 10 years, 7 years, uh, to a performance um, by the incredible Double Edge Theater, you've seen Travis and you've been amazed by his acting and his physical prowess. And Travis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, tell us a little bit about Double Edge for anybody who still has been uh, doesn't know about this extraordinary uh, phenomenon, which Double Edge Theater is. Yeah, I would love to. Um, Double Edge Theater is a company in Ashfield. Um, it's a theater company that's now been in Ashfield. Actually, next year will be its 30th year in Ashfield, which is incredible. It's on a former dairy farm, and our main campus is our farm center, which is about 100 acres of land. And during the summer, if you come, we perform our annual large-scale summer spectacle, which uses the beautiful landscape, the streams, the ponds, and we sort of create our magic there. Um, we also employ a lot of large-scale puppetry. There's a lot of flying in trees, um, boats on ponds. Um, and also outside of the summer, we operate throughout the year with our ensemble and our company, which is about, like I would say, like 25 people to 30 people right now, which is huge. Um, especially for a company in rural Ashfield, Massachusetts. Um, so we're, we're just very happy to be going on um, 30 years of life here in Ashfield. And, and we're, we in Ashfield are so yeah. happy to have you. It's, we, we, we try to describe what Double Edge is to people who don't know. It's fantastical, it's um, intelligent, it's immersive, and it exploits not just the inside of a theater, it exploits the beautiful land that surrounds the theater uh, there mm -hmm. in Ashfield, it's a theater without doors. But you have something very special going on uh, on September 10th. Could you tell us about what it is? Yes, we do. So we, um, in partnership with Jupiter Performance Studio and the Okotayo Cultural Center, which the Okotayo Cultural Center is also in Ashfield, um, we'll be partnering with the Walk Productions to bring Little Amal, which is an internationally celebrated 12-foot-tall puppet of a 10-year-old Syrian girl, to Ashfield. And that's on September 10th from 12.30 to 1.30. And really, um, this event is so special because what, what's happening right now in the world, especially with different um, 
crises um, around refugees and their rights. Um, it's so important that Amal was coming to, uh, to Ashfield because it will really shed light on refugee rights and the environmental impact of displacement on children. Now, um, let me interrupt for a second. Little Amal is a 12-foot puppet of a 10-year-old mm-hmm. Syrian refugee child who is at the heart of this walk. Where is Little Amal coming from on her way to Ashfield, and where, where, what is next in the journey of this 12-foot puppet? Please. Yeah. So before Ashfield, actually, it's the, it's, Ashfield is, I think, the second stop on Amal's journey in the United States but it will be starting in Boston. And I'm pretty sure that it's the day before, it's September 9th in Boston. I could be wrong. So definitely do some research on that. Um, but, and then she, from, from Ashfield, which will be September 10th, she'll go the same day, travel to North Adams and do another um, walk there. And then we'll journey all across the United States to the other coast. Um, so it's She's walking? She's journey. walking? It's, yeah, it's, a, it's basically a walk. And so the puppet will go from these different, different towns and different places and have this long walk. Of course, it's a, it's a theatrical event. <laughs> so there is driving, there's portions of driving, but mostly it's a walk. Um, she's going to do a lot of walking with different people in different communities. Um, and I've, I've only got to see it through video, really, what the impact of it is. But, you know, I, it's incredible to see thousands of people on the street with a mall, this, this huge puppet just walking in solidarity well, and in co- hope. Co-artistic director Travis Cole of Double Edge Theater. What do you hope people who do attend, what do you hope will be their takeaway? I hope that it's, right now in our world, it's all about the simple acts that we make um, and that we do. We are so inundated right now with all of the different crises that we have, our personal lives, everything that we're sort of um, taking in from the world. And so what I think is really amazing that the walk has done is they've created resources. They've created resources that is not just about like coming to the event, but what you can do after the event. There's work that you can do with children to spread word about what what is a refugee, what does it mean for people to be for children to be displaced. There's work for adults to do that can help just spread awareness about this um, this this crisis, and especially for Syrians, it's it's as we've seen as we've seen for many many years now. It's um it's pretty dire. Well, we will all have the opportunity to meet Little Amal, the twelve foot puppet. Uh, that'll be at Double Edge Theater in Ashfield on September. It will actually be at the Ashfield Town Common. It will not be at Double Edge Theater. Thank you for that, that correction. Yes, yes. At the beautiful Ashfield. Town Common in the center of Ashfield mm-hmm. on September yes. 10th at 1230 from 1230 to 1:30. Travis Coe, thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll be seeing you on the 10th. Yes, thanks so much. All right. Look forward to it. We are going to be right back to talk about Another really important performance is going to be happening this weekend. There my father's own father stood huddled. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. Sometimes, you know, it feels like we just get uh, numbed to the natural disasters that hit uh, throughout our country and the world time after time. We 
we point to the climate change as, as uh, being complicit in, in these terrible things, but uh, what happened recently in Maui, uh, where almost 3,500 acres, um, uh, so far 135 people, I think that there were, they were 1,200 people missing. Now that number is down to 385. They're saying, please fill out missing persons report because we just don't know how many people are missing. And the property damage is breathtakingly horrific. Um, the town of Lahaina is basically completely destroyed by flames, this beautiful historic part of Maui. And uh, as if that isn't enough, um, as we all know, Hawaii relies so heavily on, and Maui in particular, on the tourist trade, which has been decimated as well. Not only did they suffer loss of life and property, but now they're suffering uh, because people just don't want to go there, in part because they don't want to get in the way. And there are so many people throughout this country and the world who are concerned about those damages and injuries that uh, people suffered in the face of this wildflower and wildfires. And right here in our region, uh, we also have people who want to do something about it. And we have here in studio uh, Michelle Mushabek and Tony Silva, a couple of unbelievably talented people who are going to bring their talents to bear at a benefit concert at the Bombic Center. Um, and so let me start with you, Michelle. Tell us, why are you doing this? You know, the, the, the horrific wildfires on Hawaii's island of Maui have, you know, virtually destroyed the historic town of, uh, town of Lahaina. And as you said, you know, nearly 135 people have, have died so far. And it, it impacted countless of families who lost everything. So Valley Musician, a group of... Uh, Valley musicians will come together on uh, September 10th at the Bombix to do our part. You know, we're going to do our part in raising urgently needed funds for Maui relief uh, efforts, and we will be donating 100% of the ticket sales to uh, the Maui Strong Fund, which is uh, a fund uh, administered by the Hawaii community. Uh, foundation. So that's why it's a it's it's going to be a concert that will celebrate our shared humanity. And there are three ensembles, three groups of people, who will be playing at the Bombix. Uh, there is a flamenco ensemble, Fiesta Rumbera, and and friends. And we have also a lot of musicians coming and joining us on stage. Some people are coming from Boston and faraway places as well. There is Masala Jazz, a group of, of, of jazz and funk and blues uh, uh, band, and also the legendary John Sheldon, who will be joining us as well. So much talent in this region. I do want to point out, Bill, that the Maui Strong Fund, there are auditors who are also volunteers who are going to certify that 100 cents out of every dollar is going to go towards relief yes. of, for those Maui yeah. victims. Michelle, I'd be interested to know how this event fits with your work as the founder and publisher of Interlink. Well, as, as you know, Bill, you know, music is an important part of my life and, and, uh, and everything I do as a, as a publisher, I always have a musical element, whether I'm bringing in authors from, from abroad. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, it really gives you, for me, a sense of, of the culture. 
If I have a Spanish author that I'm introducing to the Valley, I always introduce it with a, with a Spanish ensemble or a Flamenco ensemble. If I have an Arab or Syrian writer, I bring in my Arabic music classical uh, ensemble as well. So I think it's, I think it's, it really gives you a feel of the, of the, of the culture and, and music can inspire, music literature can inspire activism. You know, it sparks joy, but it really uh, inspires compassion, connectedness, as well as activism. This concert at Bombex is when? It's on September 10th. That's on Sunday at 6.30 p.m. at the Bombix. Okay. And you have this amazing array and range of performers. You are one of them. I and am one of them. Okay. And so we my, my partner in crime here is Tony Silva, who is uh, the, the, the leader of the uh, Fiesta Rumbera Ensemble. It's a five-member ensemble that we will be uh, playing at the Bombix. So perhaps you and Tony could give us a sample, a bit, of Absolute. what we'll hear? Absolutely. That would be wonderful. Michelle Mushebeck, uh, you were the percussionist, but my feet won't stop bouncing right now. <laughs> that was really beautiful. That was uh, Tony Silva um, playing the Spanish guitar and uh, on percussion, of course, Michelle Mushebeck. So that's a taste of what people can get. Once again, it's going to be September 10th. It is going to be September 10th. Three bands, Fiesta Rumbero, Masala Jazz, and John Sheldon and Friends. And what time will it start? It's going to start at 6.30. Doors will open at 6 p.m. And it's going to be at, at the, the Bombix. Yes, and you can buy your tickets at www.bombix.live. And also, can I just say that if you want to support but you cannot make it, 
please just go ahead and buy a ticket because that money is going right to the fund. So um, this is a way that you can you can support our brothers and sisters in Maui that really need it right now. Well, let me ask you, Tony Silva. We just heard from Michelle, but what what th there are a lot of sort of worthy causes. Why are you so moved by this Maui fire? Uh, I mean, I, w I was just listening to the news and I was just hearing about the devastation and um, feeling kind of helpless about it. But this is what I have to offer is, is music. This is, this, is, this is the thing that I can do. I don't have a lot of money, but I have this. And if I can leverage my ability to play music and turn that into some support, then I feel the responsibility to do so. And can I also say one more thing that, <clears throat> you know, we, we, we all feel so much grief about this. Um, and I, I, what I don't want is for that grief to pull us into the darkness. And so what, what we're going to do is we're going to generate really good vibes on stage with this music and resonate those vibes with the people in the audience and create this massive generation of positive vibrations to send out to our brothers and sisters in Hawaii. I think it's important not to become desperate, but to fill the darkness with light. I know Tony Silva as a performer and you, Michelle Mushabek, as a performer, you always give 100% when you're up there. You always want the, the audience. But does it feel different when you're doing it for a benefit for a tragedy like this? Um, well, yes and no. I mean, as you said, we're always 100%, no matter what we're doing. Um, I think that uh, it, it, it's, we don't know any other way. That's, that's the only way to perform. That's the only way to interact with music for and us. And I think, I think the concert is going to be quite an unforgettable experience and a rare You have amazing groups here. I mean, yeah. this is <laughs> what, I mean, for those of our listeners who don't know, this is an all-star cast. It is. Yeah. So please, come and join us and celebrate with us and our, the three, our shared humanity. The three groups? The three groups. Tell, tell our listeners again, please. Fiesta Rumbera and Friends, Masala Jazz, and John Sheldon and friends. Who's terrific. He's yeah, just terrific. Absolutely. I, I'm wondering, I know we did not ask you to prepare more than one song, but could you play another for us? Oh, absolutely. Great, sure. great. Okay, uh, I'm going to do another one from Spain. And again, this is at Bombex when? September 10th at 6.30 p.m. That's this coming Sunday. And I'm holding in my hand, Tony Silva, your CD, Reflections of Spanish Guitar. Thank you. Okay, here we go. Vale, vamos ya. Yo te quiero ver de sí, sí. Yo te quiero ver de ya, ya. Yo te quiero ver de... Verde que te quiero verde, verde viendo verde rama el barco sobre la mar. Bayo en la montaña verde, yo te quiero verde, sí, sí, yo te quiero verde, ya, ya, yo te quiero verde. Vale. Con la sombra en la cintura, 
incredible that is a taste of what's to come one more time michelle how can people get tickets and when is the concert you can get tickets from www.bombix.live and the concert is at the bombix in florence at 6 30 p.m doors open <laughs> at 6 p.m on sunday september 10th it's the musicians from maui benefit three incredible groups you want to be there thank you michelle thank you, thank guys. you tony thank you for having us appreciate it this is Talk the Talk. Hi.